Well, good morning. Uh, as I said just a little bit earlier, we're going to be looking at Romans 10, verse 9. And a passage that can be, uh, can be in some ways uh, challenging. Um, the question, what do I do to be saved? Uh, that's a critical question, right? Um, there's a lot of ways that in the world people answer that question. There's a lot of ways I've seen that question answered. Um, I've visited with groups where I've seen there be a lesson and at the end of the lesson they just ask anyone who wants to be saved to raise their hand and they just pray over the group and presume that that prayer would save anyone with a raised hand. I've seen pamphlets with a sinner's prayer on them and the pamphlet, a little piece of paper will say, if you just pray this prayer, you know, this will save you. Some people will say, uh, just receive Jesus into your heart and you will be saved. Um, and all of those answers really just don't fit with what the Bible has to say about salvation. But this passage is a very important uh, uh, series of statements that affirm, I think, very essential principles of salvation. But these statements, I think, a lot of times are um, diminished in their truth and undermined in the way that they are uh, taught in the world. But because of that, I think it can be easy to not appreciate just the power and the importance of these statements and in understanding them in a good way, in a way that fits with the whole of what God's word teaches. So we're going to be examining Romans 10 verse 9 and just seeing how these passages do relate to salvation and how they do contain statements of truth that are statements that are salvation statements. Um, a lot of times in scripture, and particularly in Romans, when Paul the Apostle is writing about salvation, what he's, what he's choosing to emphasize and focus on are the higher principles that are involved in a relationship with God, the more fundamental principles of that relationship, things that make our relationship with God work and thrive beyond just the beginning of salvation or the moment of salvation. For instance, even in Romans 6, when Paul is talking about baptism and the work that God does to save in baptism, he doesn't just focus on the action of immersion. He focuses on the principles of what God does in baptism that remain as truths and principles that are constant in our relationship with God, that we've died to our old selves and we've been raised up to walk permanently in newness of life to present ourselves as instruments of righteousness from that day forward. And so I will suggest just at the beginning of the lesson, when Paul is talking about confessing and believing and being saved, he's dealing with higher principles, more fundamental principles that are underneath the rest of the things that need to be done to accomplish salvation, but also continue forward in the process of our relationship with God as well. Um, before we keep going, though, um, let's say a word of prayer together, and then we'll um, dig into Romans chapter 10 some more. Uh, let's pray. Father, as we just sang, um, you are a God of majesty. Your love is the foundation of our faith. Your works are what we trust. Our allegiance and our commitment and our obedience they come from what Jesus has done, God, and the love that you've displayed in his death and resurrection. 
Help us to have a faith that is more and more rooted in what Jesus has done. Help us to have more confidence in your love, more confidence in who your son came into the world to become as our king forever. Help us to have a faith that prioritizes your kingdom first above all else. Help us to have an enduring and constant faith, a growing love and adoration for you. Help us to have hearts that believe in the power of the resurrection and your ability to restore us from our own brokenness and death. Help us to see the way that you are working through your son to draw us into heaven to be glorified with him forever. Thank you for showing us your glory in such incredible ways that encourage humility and lowliness of heart that create a broken and contrite spirit. Help us to love each other in the same way you love us and to depend on you, to stand in awe of you, to proclaim Jesus as king, not just with words that are spoken or thoughts that are reserved in our minds, but help us to prove the lordship of Jesus in the way that we live every day. Please continue to help our hearts grow more aware of what you've done so that we have a greater capacity to understand who you are and share the glory of your truth with others. Your son's name, amen. Um, So Romans chapter 10 verse 9 is where we're going to be focusing our lesson. But I want to start the beginning of the lesson just looking at the context of what really is surrounding these statements. Uh, Starting in Romans 9, Paul has begun making an argument that God's promises that he had made to Israel have not failed in rejecting the physical nation of Israel, that it's always been people who are a people of faith that belong to him ultimately. And so in chapter 10, in dealing with Jews who had a zeal for God, but not a zeal that was rooted in faith, not an obedience that was rooted in faith or coming out of faith. It says again, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and is seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So I think something first... um, that is established at the beginning of chapter 10 related to what Devin preached on last week in Romans chapter 4 is our faith is not dependent or our faith does not depend on what we are capable of doing or the power that we have but our faith is ultimately rooted in what God has done for us what he's promised us what he is doing through us if you look back at Romans chapter 1 when it's talking about righteousness and how the righteousness of faith comes into our lives, um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So faith ultimately originates from what God does for us first, the first step that he takes to create faith and trust. 
And he mentions that there were Jews in his day that they had a legitimate zeal and passion for God, but God was not obligated to save them just because they had a passion for him. Um, Just as we're going to see in just a little bit, um, when he says that we need to confess Jesus as Lord, um, that confession is not just a mental acknowledgement or something we just say with our words, but don't follow through on in obedience. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, There are many who will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, but they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's those who will do the will of the Father who is in heaven who will enter. Um, So these were Jews who had a passion for God. They had a zeal, but it was not according to the knowledge of who God is or what he's done. We see this further in verses 4 through 8. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in verses 5 through 8, Paul focuses on a quotation from Deuteronomy 30. And I think that quotation helps us understand what Paul is really getting to when he talks about at the end of verse 8 that what, what he's advocating is the word of faith that Deuteronomy 30 was talking about. And this is important because, again, in verse 9, the statements in verse, verse 9 are very often treated just as a mental assent. That if you just acknowledge in your mind that Jesus is Lord and confess it with your mouth, then that automatically means you're saved right then and there. But I think if we start with Deuteronomy 30 and work our way into these statements, we'll see that this is more than just a confession and mental acknowledgement with no obedience or no submission involved. Turning your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30, Um, I'd like to read this whole chapter and try to get a sense of how the themes in Deuteronomy 30 connect to the themes in Romans chapter 10 and give us a better understanding of the kind of faith that Paul is advocating is a living and saving faith. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So Deuteronomy chapter 30 um, Moses had been revealing to the nation of Israel their entire future. Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 28, he reveals that there would be blessings that God would give them if they would be obedient. There were curses that would progressively come on the nation as they would be disobedient. And at the end of the series of curses, he mentions that God would eventually eradicate them and scatter them among all the nations because of their disobedience. But... He mentions in chapter 30 that if they were to return to him with all their heart, he would again gather them back to himself. And as he's talking about God restoring his people, we find the quotation in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. But I want to read the whole chapter and then we'll unpack some things from the chapter and how it relates to Romans chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 30. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you. And you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God 
and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord will restore you from your captivity, or restore you from captivity, and have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He shall prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all of these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand and the offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And here's where the quotation comes from in Romans 10. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. See? I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply, that the Lord your God may bless you in the land which you are, where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land which you are, where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live and your descendants by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob to give them. So God is promising through Moses here that he's going to gather the people if they turn back to him with all their heart and all their soul. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he mentions God would circumcise their heart and the hearts of their descendants to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul that they may live. And so the obedience that's emphasized in Deuteronomy 30, the faith that's being emphasized, it's a faith that understands that God is restoring them. Just like we talked about a couple weeks ago with the faith of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 and the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15, that the connection of faith is rooted in God's compassion. And so they would know that God was restoring them despite their works and that the foundation of their faith was rooted in God's forgiveness of their transgressions and iniquities. 
And so their dependence would be on what God had done, what God had promised, the works that he had accomplished in the past. And this would then drive them to have a heart that would be broken and contrite and motivated to obey. Not on the basis of what they could do, but on the basis of who God is and on the basis of what he had promised. Now in verses 11 through 14, he says, this command which I command you today is not too difficult for you. And so you imagine as the law is being read to the people and Deuteronomy is no short book. They could think these are, these are so many things God is telling us to do and how am I supposed to even remember this all? Or I just feel like God is going to punish me as soon as I make the wrong step. I just, I don't see how I could possibly obey all of these things. Or you could think, well, I don't even know how to please God or I don't know if God's told me everything that, that I, I need to know to obey him. But in verse 14, Moses emphasizes the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. And so they have what they need. God has revealed his will to them. All they need to do is incline their ear, listen, and submit. Just like the song we sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. It's exactly what Moses is telling the people. It's simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Now, I think there's another angle to this that's very important in Romans 10. But before we go to Romans 10, I want to emphasize that starting in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, seven times, starting in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, seven times Moses emphasizes the obedience of the people. And so what Moses is advocating to the people is not just a mental and verbal acknowledgement of information. He is talking about being recommitted to God, to serve him, to submit to him, and to obey him. But that that obedience stems out of a recognition of their need for forgiveness, God's power to restore them, and God's ability to bring them back and receive them graciously and mercifully. In Romans chapter 10, in verse uh, 6 and 7, Paul makes an interesting parenthetical insertion in verse 6, where he says, The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And here he quotes Moses, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. And notice this, that is to bring Christ down. I don't know how maybe you read God's word or handle conviction. But I do think it can be a struggle that when we hear what Jesus has commanded, when we sit and listen to his sermon, that when we get convicted, it just leaves us feeling helpless, hopeless, guilty without remedy. But Jesus came down from heaven to show us God's sympathy. He came down to show us that he serves the very instructions that he commands. Jesus came into the world to show us that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and temptations. And in verse 7, who will descend into the abyss? Notice this. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. It doesn't matter how far away we are from God. It doesn't matter how dead we are in relation to God's promise. It doesn't matter that we're enemies of God and hostile and separated. Jesus coming up from the dead proves that God loves us even in our sinful condition, that he is trying to reach us, that he can restore us, that he can work with us, and that his words have the power to bring life into our lives. 
And so Jesus came to show that God's word is not too difficult. It may expose our inadequacy, it may expose our weaknesses, but God is able to work with us and sympathize with us as we strive to submit to what he said. We should not be dissuaded because of the things God says that seem like they're too much or too difficult or require too much sacrifice. God's commands are not unreasonable. We shouldn't be dissuaded by feeling like my sin is too great for God to forgive or I'm too far away from the character of Jesus for God to work with me or I just don't feel like I can ever be mature in my faith or I can ever grow past this or overcome this sin. Jesus raising from the dead shows that God has the power to handle those things. So we're left without any excuse. God has made it easy. And so our dependence of faith is based on who God is and what he can do. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. Devin read this and covered this briefly last week, but I want to bring attention to this again. Verse 17, where in Romans 4, Paul again is dealing with the higher principles of faith, the more fundamental principles of salvation that exceed a moment of salvation but remain constant and true in our relationship with God. In verse 17, um, uh, partway through the verse, after the parenthetical statement, it says, In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And so Abraham recognized that God was going to have to work despite his condition, and that the power was not in Abraham, but in God and what he was capable of doing according to his nature. And this sets a foundation for the faith that Paul is continuing to detail and explain in Romans chapter 10. And so in verse 8, transitioning into verse 9, that is the word of faith that he's preaching now. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I want to spend the last part of the lesson just looking at those two statements. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and what that means and what that implies and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what that means and what that implies and seeing the truth that you will be saved. So what does it mean to confess Jesus as Lord? I think fundamentally we can understand that as a pledge of allegiance. It is a pledge of allegiance. It is a committed determination to do the will of Jesus without any bias, without any partiality, to follow everything that he said. You know, it's interesting in Romans, the first time he mentions faith in Romans is Romans chapter 1, verse 5. And I want you to notice what he brings out about faith in Romans chapter uh, 1, verse 5. It said, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
Faith determines and pledges obedience to Jesus as Lord by nature of who he is, by nature of what he's done. And if somebody claims that they believe Jesus is Lord, if they confess him as Lord with their mouth, but don't do what he says, is that pledge or confession a true statement? Turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 4. I think it's really important that in Romans chapter 10, when we're considering these statements, that we're considering them as statements of truth, as defined by God. And so what we're dealing with in confessing Jesus as Lord is an honest pledge of committed and determined obedience. We're not talking about somebody who claims with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, but refuses then to do what he says. Look at 1 John chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. So again, we're dealing with statements of truth. And I want you to think about this related even to salvation and baptism. If somebody claims Jesus is Lord, and they claim to believe that both in their mind and they say it with their mouth, and Jesus in Mark 16, verse 16 says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. And someone sees that Peter then follows that at a pivotal moment in the gospel's history when people come to him saying, what must we do to be saved in Acts chapter 2? And he responds, affirming what Jesus said. He says, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Somebody sees Jesus, who is Lord, making those statements and associating the promise of salvation with that instruction. If they refuse to obey that, Is Jesus at that point truly their Lord above all else? And so here's something we need to understand about confessing Jesus as Lord. My religious background is not Lord. Religious teachers are not Lord. The church here is not Lord. I am not the Lord. When we're talking about setting Jesus in our lives and in our hearts as Lord, what we're truthfully talking about is submitting to things that we see him communicate and express in his word. And there's obviously need for mercy and patience as someone is needing to study things out and understand, but if somebody truly has the determination in their will that they will submit to anything Jesus says, it doesn't matter how much it makes sense to them, it doesn't matter how different it is from their background or their their culture growing up, If somebody truly has that determination to obey Jesus and to obey whatever he says, they will always end up being saved in the end because they will do what he says for the reason he said to do it. And that fundamentally definitely includes baptism for the remission of sins. It also means that even beyond that moment, we need to be self-reflective and critical when we're thinking about idols in our lives that give competition to Jesus' authority as king 
and Lord. If we are going to truthfully confess Jesus as Lord, that means that we have to be careful that our desires are not taking place in our life as Lord. That my will isn't taking the place of Jesus as Lord. That my wife, my husband, my children, my employer taking place as, as Lord in my life. It means that whatever Jesus says is the foundation for my life and everything else is changed afterwards. So when Jesus gives an instruction, that comes first. And that means other things have to be denied as a result. That at times will take courage. It will take study. It will take time. But somebody who has set in their life that Jesus is the absolute Lord in his life, whatever he says takes first and final priority. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. What does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? I think one of the fundamental implications, if God raised Jesus from the dead then that means that God alone has power over life and death. Turn to John chapter 6, and I want to look at verse 63. Um, It's not just that Jesus' words carry an authority, which they do. It's that Jesus' words hold power with their authority. And that if God raised Jesus from the dead, that means that that God's words hold the power to restore and give and create life. Look at John chapter 6. And we're going to read just a little bit before verse 63. We're going to start in verse 59. But this is where Jesus was saying some challenging things to the Jews that they were not receiving very well. And so in verse 59 it says, These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. When we submit to things that Jesus says. It's not that we are trying to earn salvation through obedience. It's that we are depending on God's power through our obedience. That everything that Jesus says is to bring life into our lives. It's to restore us. It's to recreate us back into the image of God. Just as we read from Romans chapter 4 with Abraham's faith, he was depending on God to call into being that which does not exist and bring life to the dead. And so our obedience is motivated by the humility of acknowledging that in obeying God, I'm dying to myself. And the role of obedience is that I put to death everything that stands in the way of the life-giving force of God's commandments. And so in John chapter 6, verse 63, there is a truth to those statements that relates to Romans chapter 10. That it's not just that God raised Jesus from the dead, it's that Jesus' words not only carry the authority of God, but Jesus' commands and God's commands in him carry the power of life, the power of God that we depend on and is, uh, is what roots our faith.
It also implies if God raised Jesus from the dead, it also implies that I'm dead apart from him, that I'm guilty, and that there's no living person who has life and the power to give life like Jesus exclusively does. Turn back to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to make a couple of tie-ins with Romans 5 and 6. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. And again, this is an implication of this statement that God raised Jesus from the dead and what it really means to believe that. If God raised Jesus from the dead, his word has the power to give, create, and restore life. But it also implies something about both my condition and everyone else's condition. Romans 5 verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, again, is not just a mental acknowledgement of information. It is the acknowledgement that I am depending on God's expressed will to give me life, that I am depending on his love, his compassion, and his power to fulfill his promises, and that I'm obeying him, not because I'm meriting anything from my obedience or earning anything by following him, but by depending on his grace and mercy and love in the things he's promised. And so I'm an enemy of God apart from Jesus, as implied by his death. Everybody is dead apart from Jesus, as is implied by his death. But because of his resurrection, God has made it very well known that his love is more than sufficient to receive me, to redeem me, and to restore me by the power that is in Jesus to raise me from the dead. And how should that affect our obedience? That again means religious teachers don't have power over life like Jesus does. Their words do not have that power. Religious organizations, I don't have that power, you don't have the power. This puts us in a place where we are depending on God's word to produce the faith that leads to obedience. Just as it says later in the chapter, a verse that we may all have committed to memory, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This funnels our focus and it narrows our focus in. What has God said? And when I see his word, I'm looking at it as the final authority for my life. I am diligently seeking for God to tell me the direction to go, the purpose of my life, the value of my life. I'm seeing in his promises restoration for me, promises of healing for my broken condition, that he will heal my broken heart, that he came into the world to show his sympathy, his compassion, but he was raised from the dead to show the relevance of the life that he promises to give to all who will come to him. Turn to Romans chapter 6, and here's where we'll conclude the lesson. Jesus, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, implies that if Jesus needed to be raised from the dead, 
I need to be raised from the dead as well. So we have two things that I think push us towards the necessity of baptism in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Oftentimes, Romans 10, verse 9 can be kind of a nervous verse. It seems like it's saying, you know, poof, you believe in your heart, you confess in your mouth, you're magically saved. Again, I want to suggest to you that what it's implying is a confession that leads you to do whatever he says, to have the condition of faith where you will do it with a genuine heart, with the right perspective, and you will continue on in your relationship with God, building on those principles. We see that in Romans chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. If you look, back, if you look forward in verse, um, verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In Romans chapter 10, Paul is building off of established lessons in salvation, faith, righteousness. These are not just meant to be isolated statements taken on their own, right? And so a necessary implication, what it means to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead is to look for what God expressly says allows me to share in that resurrection as well. And Peter, again, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, is very clear. When they asked him, what shall we do to be saved? He told them what it means to truthfully confess Jesus as Lord. And he told them what it truthfully means to believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. He told each of them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins and they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It can't end there, though. Who is Paul writing to in Romans chapter 10? Is it unbelievers hearing the gospel for the first time? Paul is writing to Christians who have been saved in their past, and yet he says, and you will be saved. I want to caution at the end of this lesson. Most of us, maybe have been baptized in our past for the remission of our sins in good faith. But there's a sense where we are still working out our salvation. And there's a sense where the truths that we're studying here, again, are higher principles of our relationship with God that are not just meant to exist in a vacuumed moment. We're to continuously be renewing our pledge of allegiance to Jesus' lordship. We are to be growing in understanding the deadness of the condition that is separated from God, the glory of the resurrection that we are still seeking to attain to, 
And so these are not just lessons for those who have not heard the gospel or submitted to it. These are things that we continuously need to be more firm in. These are things that we need to continuously be understanding and comprehending more richly as we live and serve God. And so if you're here this morning and you've never made that pledge of allegiance to Jesus as Lord, that does begin with hearing the message of the gospel, having a convicted heart, believing that message, and being determined to repent of your life and to turn to God and receiving the gospel by submitting to what he said happens at the time of baptism, that God cuts away our past of sin and raises us out of the water to walk in newness of life for that day forward. And that freedom can be yours if you will simply pledge that commitment and determine to live for him this morning. If there's any other need that you have this morning, we encourage you to bring it before the church as we stand and sing the invitation song.